Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Eric Bond from Hustle Fund. Eric's the first investor in Pay Club to come on the pod, so that's exciting. Before Eric became a VC, he was a founder himself. Plus, he's just a cool and interesting guy. I think you're going to like this conversation. I'm back from the Masters, two days without my phone. Getting back to the car both days and having like 15 missed phone calls and about 100 emails, that's a little stressful. But the experience of being on one of the most beautiful courses in the world, having conversations with people from all over, it's actually super nice not having the phone. And I heard the same thing from lots of people. Yes, it's great having our entire lives right in our pocket, but it's also great living life and connecting with people, which the phone usually gets in the way of. Not having the phone definitely enhances the experience. I bet it's true with other things in life too. You should give it a try. Besides the phone, the tournament is so special. I don't know of anything else like it. It's an incredibly delightful experience from the moment you pull into the free parking to the way you can place a chair down in the morning and come back to it whenever you want later in the day. The food's delicious, especially the Georgia peach and sugar ice cream sandwich, which I had two of both days. And then everything costs like one or two bucks. It's amazing. Then there's just the beauty of everything, how it's all perfect, how friendly everyone is. I just can't think of anything to compare it to. They've been putting on this tournament for 83 years, and they've perfected the smallest details. Focus to detail, that's one thing that makes for a delightful experience. Whether it's a golf tournament or a new app, by paying attention to what your customers want, even if they don't know what they want, that's crucial. When we first got there, we had to wait around in the parking lot for a little bit. And I was delighted to see a bathroom close by. Who puts a bathroom in the parking lot? Not to mention an air-conditioned, staffed bathroom with someone cleaning it after every single person goes in. You would never think of that, but they did. For Pay Club, yes, it's about solving a problem that's a pain in the ass. But I think a lot about how we can solve that problem while delighting our users. Obviously, a smoothly functioning and secure app, but also simple design and flow. Plus, stuff like instant access to money or the ability to like or comment on a payment. Things you aren't thinking about, but once they're there, it's like, wow, this is nice. We're not at the master's level quite yet. But I love seeing when a business puts out an experience that is just so pleasurable, like unboxing a new iPhone, binging an entire season of something on Netflix, not pumping gas into your Tesla every week, or signing up for a Chase bank account. Well, maybe not that last one. 
But I'd love to hear from everyone about product experiences you find delightful and also any ideas to make the pay club experience a little better. Okay, that's it from me. Let's get into our very special interview with Eric. Eric Bond, we just shared nice fish taco lunch, and now we're in your office, the original Twitter office, chatting uh, for the podcast. That's right. Thanks for the opportunity. Original Twitter and original Instagram office here in South Park. Wow. It's a lucky day for me. It's my podcasting pilgrimage out to San Francisco. You're one of a few guys I'm talking with today, but... I'm excited though because you're you're a little bit different than anyone I've had on the podcast. I've had lots and lots of venture capitalists. I have not yet had have had one that has invested in my startup. So you're the first. You're going to be the first of hopefully many, many, many. But you're the first. I feel like it's a little bit of nepotism at play here. Maybe uh, I'm I'm forcing you to do this. <laughs> well, I saw the opportunity that uh, that you guys are putting on this great podcast. So I appreciate you putting me on. Yeah, so you've started the fund now. It's called Hustle Fund, and I think your one-liner is you invest in ridiculously early entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's right. Ridiculously early and also ridiculously talented entrepreneurs like you and Jason. So um, we're very proud to be Pay Club backers. Um, So we launched in September 2017, relatively new fund, but uh, we have a pretty different model from, I think, a lot of other VCs that you guys are experiencing right now. Um, so a little bit about our thesis, if this could be interesting to talk about. The, we think that the best leading indicator of success for companies that become breakout stars is this thing called hustle. Uh, for us, hustle is defined as teams that exhibit great execution and high velocity. So years ago, when me and Elizabeth co-founded Hustle Fund, we discovered that you know there was this leading indicator that seemed to be consistently showing again and again with the teams that we liked most, which were you know the teams that were focused on few KPIs that were relevant to your business and were just consistently crushing those metrics and measuring and instrumenting and crushing and experimenting, were just grinding out the best performance over time. And uh, we thought that there could actually be an institutional venture capital model that is centered around this, this notion of measuring hustle. And so we formed the fund. Uh, the way that we assess for hustle is also a little bit strange. Uh, so we're writing 100 checks into 100 teams in our fund one, $25,000 checks per team. We then work with each team on a growth project for four to six weeks, generally, usually related to sales and user acquisition. And it's during that time where we can get a sense of the team's uh, ability to execute. And also, critically, the teams are assessing us to see whether we're actually hustling and providing real value. Uh, back and um, whenever there's good fit across the two teams, we ask to participate in your next financing round, and we can you know invest more in each other's relationships, but also our capital to uh, to grow a really nice business over the next decade. So that's what we do. Software-based companies are what we like, and uh, we were looking for hustlers just like the Pay Club team. Yeah, and I mean I can tell you from firsthand. I mean we've worked with your partner Shion. And going through that six-week-long process with her, jumping on a Zoom call with the team and her every Friday afternoon, for us, it was a really good conclusion for the week. We would tell Shion what we did, how it went. We'd look at our numbers. She would say, well, have you thought about this? And what have you thought about that? And we'd say, well, we're having fraud now. And she was like, oh, I know the three best fraud people in the world. And here you go. Let me plug, let me plug you into them. And now I need help with this. And, and so like the model for us was amazing. We really got a lot out of it. I'm glad to, to hear that. And, and the Sheehan uh, case is pretty amazing because, uh, so Sheehan is our third general partner along with me and Elizabeth Yin. 
and she's based in Singapore, right? So she's had a great fintech background, but I'm so happy to see that uh, the video call structure, even when she was based across the world, uh, was still helpful for you. Yeah, and we got to... It was Saturday morning when we do these calls, so we would see her brand new, ba- brand new baby and her yeah. family, and so I mean, yeah, we were part of each other's lives. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, you got a new baby as well. She does. It's, it's so kind do of, you. It's just like <laughs> we all just have babies. To be on this podcast, you have to have a baby under one year old. I time. think that's a, a tough but uh, interesting rule to have, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, Eric, you're you've, you're starting this you know pioneering new venture firm. Uh, but you didn't start off your life in venture. I mean, let's hear about the beginning, how you came to this. Were you a startup kid growing up? Like, did you get the bug? How did uh, it go for you? Yeah, beginning, beginning. So it was a cold autumn day in 1981 when I was born in Detroit, Michigan. So I was actually born and raised in the Midwest. We actually talked about this during lunch as a, uh, there's a Michigan connection between us. <clears throat> and um, so I came out to California 19 years ago for college. This is actually uh, my freshman year at Stanford is when I met both Elizabeth and Sheehan. So the two of us have had this relationship for close to two decades, uh, have grown old together, known each other half our lives. And um, came out to school completely directionless all through college. My only focus was really having a lot of fun. And um, didn't do any summer jobs, just you know, I took easy majors and classes and came out of school realizing that I had no real marketable uh, opportunities for me to work at like a, a great bank like you did out of college or, um, <clears throat> or even like to, to join like a good company. So I called my mom in 2005, this is when I graduated, and I was like, mom, uh, I don't have uh, any idea what I'm going to do next. And she said to me, like, listen, Eric, and this is like in Korean, okay? So this is what my translation in my mind is basically it was like, you're too stupid to become a doctor or a lawyer or even an accountant. So maybe, maybe you should consider just like going to business school and buying more time to figure it out, right? <laughs> and so, you know, my mom, Young Bon, she's a very wise lady. I was like, probably should follow this advice, right? Uh, applied to business school. But in the process of doing that, I um, formed a, a day-to-day study blog. So I have only one superpower in this life. All right, like there's very few things I think I'm very good at, but the ability to study for, prepare, and execute well on standardized tests, I'd say I'm like ridiculously good at this. The one skill I have in my life is just standardized tests. Well, that's a good skill. It's a good skill, but it ends around like 18, yeah. honestly, right? I mean, in terms of its utility, maybe when you're applying to grad school. And so I started this day-to-day GMAT study blog called Beat the GMAT, and unknowingly, I kicked off a nine-year project where this blog became a forum, this forum became a social network, a media site, and then eventually a data analytics platform, and then uh, uh, sold the company to the Daily Mail in, uh, in 2012-ish. So seven years to get to acquisition, two years after that. And then, uh, so had like a very great graduate education, never went to business school, by the way, so despite the GMAT score. And, um, you know, became an operator, just uh, was able to find some other real jobs after that. So I was at Facebook and Instagram and then started to focus more on angel investing about five or six years ago. And that's when I started to really fall fall in love with the investing side of things. So had zero idea what I was going to do out of college, but ended up in uh, in a place that I could have never imagined I'd end up. Yeah. So there's this like serendipitous random walk type um, through line of, of kind of what I'm getting from this. And uh, it sounds like you had a mom that, 
your upbringing, you weren't getting participation trophies, right? <laughs> uh, actually, you know, us having babies, I just read an article on, like from this baby class I'm part of, and they say you shouldn't be over-praising your children. And sure. So, and so here you go. I'm, I'm looking at a child that didn't get overly praised, and now you're a big-time venture investor, worked at Facebook, started businesses, sold businesses. So, okay, I'll, I'll Well, take, uh, talking about my mom for a second, so great lady, right? Hard to grow up with her, but a great lady. Um, the, the thing that she really did instill in me that I've been sort of toying with with my own kids is like, she basically said that there's no such, so she's not of the school that there's a, a concept of like innate intelligence that you're just like born smarter or genius. I believe in that actually to a large degree, but she says like everything is done through hard work, right? So never in my life have I considered myself like a smart person. And as a result, like produce a real chip on my shoulder. I think of just like the way that I'll, I'll compete is by outworking, Right. Uh, worked for me in school to get into a good school, and then I totally burned out and just like had a ridiculously good time in college. And then uh, I guess now it's sort of coming back full circle. So <laughs> philosophically, with our own kids, I'm just like, how much of that message do I want to drive home? Uh, you know, because I want them to work hard, but at the same time, I think I'm gonna praise them a little bit more than my mom did because it's just hard not to, right? You got your own kid, you love them, so <laughs> right. Uh, so. This random walk, does, does Beat the GMAT, it just starts off as kind of like a side-type project? Yeah, it does. So um, I'd say that my career has, is really summarized in terms of falling upwards, right? I mean, like, it's, it, there's no plan behind it. But what I qu- learned over the course of just the projects I've done is just um, any, any team, anytime that I'm in a position where I'm working something that I'm just not personally passionate about, I end up doing really poorly, so example of this would be my last gig at Facebook and Instagram when I was a product manager there. I was working on some really cool things, but never was that personally interested in what I was doing. And as a result, I was very generously maybe like a, a mediocre employee there, a performer, probably more re- real, like a bottom 25th percentile worker there. I just could never get my head into it. And then what I got from uh, my first taste of Beat the GMAT and then other projects that I ran on my own was that w- when I really did believe in the project, like I could easily get into flow state so quickly, right? I could spend all my time there and come, come out at the end of the day after a long, long, you know, jam session or whatever of, of just feeling so happy. Right, it improves. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in our lunch. It's like it improves, like my marriage, my relationships with my friends, my relationship with my kids. When I can get into that flow state at work and and just enjoy that joy. So, um, I felt that I beat the GMAT. That was a great run. Um, I went a little bit crazy and started working for other people. You know, for a couple of years after that, that never worked out well. And then now I'm sort of full circle back to my own projects, and uh, sort of back to who I think I am as my authentic self. Right. So it sounds like. After school, your mom said you're not smart enough to go get a great job, so you start your own business and have it for a while, and it does really well. But then it sounds like there was maybe still something inside of you that said, "Okay, like mom, look, I am smart enough now; I can go get a job at uh, at Facebook." You know, it's funny because like uh, even today, I think like as of last Christmas, so I'm 37 years old. My mom still brought up brought up the notion that it's not too late to do one of those post-bac programs where you can go back to medical school. <laughs> and by like 50, I might be done with my fellowship and residence. I'm like, uh, no, just like, yeah. So that stuff never really goes away. You know, at the end of the day, I think like parents just can't have a hard time viewing their kids as adults and, you know, doing their own thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, this is like the happiest I've been, right? Uh, just doing work that I love, working with people that I love as well, and then going home to people that I love, right? Yeah, you're, I mean, that's a very lucky position that you've been able to carve out for yourself. 
authentic self flow state. You, you're graduating college. You have no clue what, you, what you're going to do. Um, it just like so happened that your flow state happens from starting things, you're saying being around people that, uh, that inspire you. How'd you like, how'd you get to that? Like, where did the idea come from? Like how, how, where did this even start? So let's start talking about like the beat the GMAT story. Like again, it began with this like day-to-day study blog and the, the purpose behind it was actually to just keep myself accountable to my studies. Right. So at the time when I was preparing for this GMAT test, which is the entrance exam for MBA programs, um, the, usually the first step that you take is actually to prepare for the entrance exam, right? Before you like write the essays and all that stuff and pick the schools. So I went to the library, got these books, and I was like, I just need to study consistently every day for like two to three hours. And then after like two months, I think I'll be ready. That's usually been my pattern for standardized tests. And I thought, you know, my girlfriend, who's not my wife, and my parents and my family, they might be interested in just, I want to like let them know that I'm studying to keep them accountable, to just like bug me if I'm not. So I created this blog. And then the other outcome of that I was hoping for was just like maybe someday someone like an Alex who applies to like a great school like Anderson will find it and is like, hey, I want to stay for the GMAT myself. Maybe you can just follow this thing. So literally these blog posts were like day 15, open Kaplan pages like 15 through 30 and do these problems. And here's what I learned. So um, unwittingly, this, this blog ended up becoming really popular. Um, Turns out that in the mid-2000s, there's a dearth of uh, self-study resources for the GMAT test. And I was getting more and more comments, more and more questions. At the time, I published my email there. And people were emailing me in increasing volume up to like 100 times a day with like asking for their own advice on studying on their own. And so after about a year of this, it only took me two months to study for this exam. And then about a following year after that, I was still getting crazy volumes of people. That's when I decided to turn this into a forum. And then it sort of just like through lots and lots of experimentation, just my obsession really in this space, uh, I, I fell into it. And the thing that I actually discovered as the mission behind all this work, it was I didn't I never viewed this as like a test prep website. I actually viewed this as a as a project to democratize access to higher education. Because it turns out that like from learning from the community, I, I was like, oh my gosh, there are people who come from like a random village in some remote part of the world who do not have access to even like a GMAT book, right? And they're exclusively relying on my website to prepare for this exam. There's one person I know in Ethiopia, actually, that I remember, who his name was uh, 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 Iab Kanife, I think. Uh, sorry to blow up your spot there. But like um, he would uh, spend one hour each week in a village uh, internet cafe and then uh, used the site, and then eventually he nearly uh, aced the entire exam, like got close to 800 out of 800, and then went to Harvard Business School, right? And I was just like, holy shit, this is, <laughs> like, this actually works. And like, someone with like, this kind of uh, lack of resources is actually benefiting. And just knowing that, having that closed feedback loop just made me so, so much more obsessed around the mission. And this is why I fell in love with that, that project. That's really cool to hear, Eric. So you have it. You're in flow state for seven full years. You sell the company. What are you thinking next? Well, at first I thought it was going to be retirement, right? It, it wasn't like an insanely huge exit, but it was enough to like take me a pretty long way. And so my wife and I traveled for about a year and then um, a little bit under a year. And during that time we got pregnant. So that's when I decided to come back and I had this reactionary mode of like, okay, time to like stop fooling around like a kid and I'm going to get a real job with real benefits and so forth. And that's when I actually started working at um, Facebook and then, you know, found that wasn't a fit. I was getting really grumpy and so forth. But um, 
what I discovered from this process was just like, I think I understand after running my own company, after working for other people, where I get, where I derive my flow state. And it really was having a super wide swim lane where I can do everything. I can do a little bit of product marketing, even law, legal and, and so forth. And uh, you generally can get that when you're running your own business. Yeah, I mean, you have to have that when you're running. You your have own. to. I mean, like you and Jason right now, are primarily the two guys that are like running Pay Club and like scaling it very impressively on your own. But as a result, your the hats that you wear are probably like twenty a day, right? So, including this podcast, right? Um, so, um, I love that, right? I've, I've always viewed myself more as like a, a dilettante, not like a like a, a, a focus thinker. So a dilettante being like, I'm interested in a lot of things at like relatively shallow depth, and I'm like proficient enough, right? <laughs> and you get so much of that just in working at a startup. Um, even as like an early employee at a startup, you get quite a bit of that. So there's nothing about like you need to start your own company. But I wanted to get back into that flow state. And in addition to that, the kid really produced some good context of just like, my wife and I really want to show that self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency is like a value that we care about as a family. And she runs her own business, I run my own business, and it's something that uh, uh, we can now teach. And I mean, it's, this is part of your journey of like working for these big companies. I mean, you saw the startup stuff, you were, it was great, you were great at it, you were your authentic self, but you wouldn't have known that you'd need this wide lane had you not gone to work for Facebook. I think so, right? You, it takes a couple of different mental models and being in it and experiencing it to understand what you truly like, right? So this is why the cliche that there's no such thing as failure is, is I think, utterly true because generally it will teach you a lesson of like what you were bad at or what wasn't a good fit, right, uh, in, many, in many contexts. And uh, had to fail about 50% of the time to, to win in the other 50% of the times, right? So I'm, I feel very fortunate that... I had all those experiences, no regrets, wouldn't change a single thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, I love that. So you have a kid now, you have a stable job with benefits and health insurance and all that great things that come along with working for a big company, but you're saying, I'm not fulfilled. Yeah. So what, how, do you, like, how do you reconcile that? I have a mentor, her name is Julie Brush. Um, she, she and I have been friends for about 17 years at this point. And when I told her that I was going to work at this big company, her words to me were like, you are going to make a mistake here because you need to realize that the joy that you receive in one part of your life will only expand to other parts of your life. But if you're unhappy in one part of, a major part of your life, then that unhappiness will then also infect the other parts of your life. Right. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then I walked away. And then it turns out that she's utterly true. I was just getting more and more grumpy at my day job working for the man. And my relationship was starting to suffer with my wife. She's always been great, but she could clearly tell I was grumpy all the time. I can't just like switch on a happy switch too when you're playing with your kid after like 10 hours of like a shitty job. So, or just a job that's a terrible fit. I shouldn't say it's even shitty. Um, and uh, so like I, I wasn't bringing my best self at home, right? And, and that was really, really difficult for me to accept especially since like kids between zero and three are so vulnerable in terms of their brains and their perception of their parents. So my wife, being the rock star that she is, is constantly challenging me to 100x my vision. That's just her job, among another, a lot of other things <laughs> as a partner. But she's always saying, like, trying to push me harder. And she's like, you got to quit tomorrow, and then we're going to figure out something that's way bigger than this. Right? 
And um, I trusted her and I trusted myself and, and that's, it, it turned out to be okay as a result. Um, yeah, so that's... So when you're quitting, you, you're like, you know you need to get to something where you have autonomy and you can do lots of different things, but do you have ideas? Like, is, this, is the start of investing stuff starting to sprinkle into your... Yeah, movie? yeah. So I've been doing a lot of parallel angel investing after the exit uh, of BTG Met, but I bought a little bit of time, honestly. So my buddy Elizabeth, the co-founder of Hustle Fund, at the time was leading the 500 Startups Accelerator, and she's like, do you want a really cushy job as an EIR? I'm like, yes, you know, like what are the what are the job requirements? And she's basically like, you basically do nothing. <laughs> like you can just if you want to do some investing on behalf of the fund or just do a lot of coaching. It's really flexible. There's healthcare, and uh, it was it was a great experience. The the team there was wonderful, and that's when I really fell in love with the VC side of things. I I always was skeptical, and actually very antagonistic about the idea of venture capital. To me, they were represented this predatory group, highly transactional, just trying to take ownership away from my business, all the economics. But then I saw a side of VC where like, actually there's a lot of protagonists in this field that are great and like truly care and have a relationship kind of mindset toward the founders. So um, when I saw that side of things like, and, and the impact that I was able to have on the founders and also the fact that my dilettante brain was being really well fed where I could back founders in fashion and beauty or in like B2B and like, all, like 12 different other categories that I had interest in. Um, and that these founders were way better than I ever was, right? I was just like, this is the most leveraged job in the world, right? So uh, that, that really was, was life-changing, that experience, and just really understanding, like, wow, I think I could find a, a true calling in this work. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's really fun to hear, cool how you're able to... You're right. I've never thought about VC that way with leverage, but I mean, that's exactly what it is. You're just putting your money behind the smartest, brightest, most driven people in every different field, and you get to reap the benefits. Yeah, although, like, the, the putting the money behind part is something that I always challenge. Because, like, yes, there's a component that we're giving pay clubs some of our capital and supporting you. But at the end of the day, too, like, this is a 10-year journey or maybe a 30-year journey that we're on. Like, maybe there's going to be another company after pay club after you guys IPO, right? Where it's just, like, I'm actually investing in people I want to grow old with. Right. Yep. This is like the same question I asked my wife. Like when I, before, I was like, "Do you want to grow old with me?" Right. That's the same question I'm asking to my partners Elizabeth and Sheehan, and also to my founders. And that's actually where the work becomes super fun. Yeah. Is like that sort of mindset of just like these people are fucking great, and I get to like hang out with them, and like we can develop together. You know, have each other's backs. You know, so that that's really where I think the joy of of this vintage of VC that I'm noticing not only within our fund, like a lot of like the newer funds and. Are, are taking that mindset too. Right. Surrounding yourself. I mean, you are the people that you surround yourself with. Well, at least taking a more relationship driven mm-hmm. ethos, I guess, into the work versus like, you know, focusing on like IRR or other kinds of like measures of financial impacts. Like that, that to me is a little bit too cold. Right. So yeah. some type of, some type of balance of, of both. I think so. Great. You, let's see, we're, we're, we're getting to the end of this. We have, I have a couple of standard questions that I'm going to have to ask you, but um, I want to talk about life after liquidity. <laughs> sure. So you started, you started another blog. I guess this was probably during your, your travel days, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I'll tell you, the, so I started a, a primarily a travel blog, but it's also become now like a personal philosophy blog called lifeafterliquidity.com. And um, I'll tell you like the kind of like devious idea behind it. So right before we traveled, we were going to take this year off, right, to, to go all over the world. 
And I had this like really good format of just like taking a lot of photos and like describing what I was doing. And at the end of the end of it, my wife and I were considering doing a, a long term like a travel course to teach like people how to like escape their jobs and like travel cheaply. And the notion behind life after liquidity was that it could be a tax write off. <laughs> we could just like go to these trips, do the course, and then like write off all the expense of our travel to uh, you know as like a business expense, right? We never actually ended up doing that. Um, but that was like actually the original impetus behind it. But then later, I just started to opine about a, a variety of things that I was just thinking about in my life, like becoming a new dad or finding my purpose and so forth. And in my early 30s, that's really when I began to seriously ponder this stuff, right? So it has some audience. It's cool, but I, I rarely write there. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's actually become a pretty special blog for me. Like I, I do intend to, to build it out. It'll be not necessarily focused on work or anything, but... Um, yeah, I, I'm still trying to form what the, the new thesis is going to be. Now that's not going to be like a tax write-off scheme. Right. Well, maybe something around relationship building. Could be. Yeah, that's a big uh, thing. That's a big topic that I care about these days. Yeah, that's so cool. And so I have la two final questions that sure. I ask everyone. Please. One's a new one and one's an old one. The old one's about advice. And I read something on the, I think, I think it was on the, on the, the blog talking about saving half of your money. But basically I, I want to talk about advice for someone early in their career, trying to find their place in the world, like what they should be doing. You know, the point where they're, they're talking to their mom and their mom's saying, I, you need to go to business school. Like I, putting some type, they don't, they haven't had the experiences that, that you've had in long, sure. your, along your journey. What do you tell someone like that? So, um, I do, think that any advice of just like follow your passion is generally terrible, right? I mean, there's actually something to be said about like gritting your teeth and doing the bad stuff. <laughs> uh, let, let me give you an example. Let's say that you want to go down the entrepreneur's path. Mm. I think there is incredible value of working for a big company for a couple of years before you do that. And here's the thinking why, is eventually when you do start your company, and then you scale it, and then likely it's going to be acquired or IPO or something like that. Probably acquired, let's say. Um, um, you're going to be able. To, you're going to then have the the job after the acquisition, after the champagne is popped, of integrating the business into a larger company and having a mental model of how a well-run large company works, and just being in, in the, that experience for some period of time is invaluable. Because uh, so. You know, we actually had a pretty successful integration of of uh, BTG Man to a larger acquirer. Um, we had some people with that experience, right, of working at larger companies, and as a result, we were able to break up the company into like, you know, the accounts receivable department, the accounts payable department, the sales team, the payroll team, like all the things that were just I was doing by myself. We figured out how to just naturally integrate that to set up the company for success longer term. As a result, Beat the GMAT is actually still running even after seven years of the acquisition. No idea how it's doing, but it's still going, right? Uh, I think it's large part because we were able to take some of those experiences on our team of understanding how big companies are run and applying that uh, uh, post-acquisition. So, uh, there, and also, like as you're scaling up, you can use those mental models as like, okay, like our team's now 100 people. We probably need like this kind of department, this kind of department, and so forth. And and that those are good mental models to have as well. Um, so even if you hate it, I'd say that it's worth getting some experience there. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll stop there. Yeah, I. I like it. I mean, I, I, I want to challenge you a little bit to say, like, if you've got some great idea and you're graduating college, then maybe you don't need to go work for McKinsey for two years. You can just 
go go do it like no time like the present. But right, if you're not quite sure, working for a big company is is like a good way to go. I think that's fair. So if you if you have an idea that you're truly passionate about and like it's it's just a burning itch that you need to scratch, then it's never a good time. It's always a good time to start. Right? Like screw like whatever experiences that you have to date or your lack thereof. Um, you know, chasing the opportunity and, and jumping through that window, like it, it could make sense. Right. I mean, this is what we were talking about over lunch about the, what we want to instill in our children, and we want to be self-starters. You want to be doers. Just yeah. go, go out and do. Totally. Okay. So, last question, Eric. A big theme of this podcast is providing value, not just asking people for things. Say, hey, can I have a job? Hey, I'm I'm so and so. Do you want to hire me? but actually helping people and providing value to other people. So I want to ask, you know, the listeners of this podcast are business school students and working in tech and finance. Is there anything that they could do to, that would provide value to you in your life and your, in your job? What the audience could do yeah, to, help, to any, provide value to me? Any of the listeners could, could do that would, that would help you. Wow, that's tremendous. So uh, thank you for asking that. You know, we're a pre-seed fund, which means that we're a venture capital institution that likes to invest alongside of family and friends and angels. So... If you're working on a software-related startup um, and you're looking for your first venture capitalist or any first tranche of capital on your interesting idea, we'd love to hear from you. So our website's hustlefund.vc, Victor Charlie, and there is an ingestion form that you can fill out to send us a little bit of details about your company. I promise you, every day we look at that form. And... Uh, we review every single detail, so you know, you know, just know that this isn't a black box that you're submitting your details about. But if you're hustling something good, we'd love to learn about it, and maybe there could be a fit to work together. Eric, this was so much fun speaking with you. Thanks for believing in Pay Club. Thanks for keeping the hustle alive. <laughs> sure thing. This was great. I appreciate the opportunity, and thanks for doing this, too. This seems like a pretty amazing series that you guys are running, so thank you. Thanks for listening today. Let me know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends about this podcast. Thanks.